In this episode, we are going to talk about salvation, grace, and sacraments. And this is a continuation of our last two conversations, one that was on the baptism and the other that was on the Eucharist, the two sacraments in the Church of the Nazarene. And there are also articles of faith in the Nazarene Manual. But today we're just going to be talking generally about salvation, having a good theology of salvation, and what it means to have sacraments and to be a sacramental church. And first we are going to discuss a theology of salvation and how important it is to have a good, solid, holistic understanding. Next we will discuss what a sacrament is and how the church can be sacramental in everything we do, even in activities that do not meet the criteria for being a recognized sacrament. Then we will compare the two sacraments in mainline Protestantism, those which are baptism and the Eucharist, and of course the Church of the Nazarene fits there in the Protestant world, and then we will compare those with the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. And finally, we will conclude with a question of whether or not we should expand our list of recognized sacraments. So, welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure, and it is produced by Clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. And I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and here with me in our studio, Cord Purgatory, are many others. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. I'm Pastor Anthony Alegria. And I'm Pastor Mike Proctor. And you can be thankful at home that you are not trapped here in Cord Purgatory <laughs> with us. Our studio is a fun place to be, but be glad you're not in it. But I'll tell you one thing that you can do. If you would like to grab a link to our content and share it with your friends or family, that would help us out tremendously just hitting like down there. We want to hear from you and hear the things which you enjoy, the conversations you'd like to hear us talk about. And if you'd like to support us monetarily, you can do that at patreon.com slash kingdomofthelogos. That'll help us expand and do things of that nature. And finally, make sure you are supporting your local church. You're involved in a local fellowship where you are being fed. All right, now let's get into our conversation for today. So we're going to be talking a lot about salvation, and that's kind of necessary to understand where we're going with the language of sacraments. And just full disclosure up front, even if you're not familiar with what a sacrament is or the language of sacramental, I realize that is a lot of church jargon, and sometimes people, they hear these big words and they say, well, let me just go to something else. I don't want to hear all that. It is a good conversation for us to have, and I hope by the end of this you will be able to use those words pretty regularly. It will be something easy to, to grasp. And if you already know what those words are, well, very good. <laughs> we'll continue on all the same. But let's talk about salvation first, because our theology of salvation heavily influences how we deal with the rest of the aspects of the church. And often in the Protestant wing of the church, which is where we find ourselves in the Church of the Nazarene, we find that we come out of a series of movements. There's the evangelical movement, then the revival movements, and the great awakening movements, which all come towards the holiness movement, and there you have the Church of the Nazarene. We come out of all of these movements, and there was really a habit of reducing salvation down to a single moment. You might go to a camp meeting, and they kind of want to drive people towards an altar, and there was a heavy emphasis on a single moment. And this moment was one that was essentially a legal exchange where a person's sin was forgiven. Sort of their rap sheet was cleared. Now, if we're to have a good, complete theology of salvation, we realize that we can't reduce it to just a single point and cut it off from the works around that point. And we don't want to make salvation cheap. And to reduce salvation just to a single point and cut it off from the great cost, again, salvation doesn't happen in a vacuum. It isn't just something where you can snap your fingers and find it. It did come at a massive cost. God sent his begotten son to die on a cross and be resurrected. There is a lot of grace and a lot of grace from God which precedes salvation. And even with your life as a believer, God is doing things even before one comes to know God. And we can't reduce salvation to the point where we cut it off from a more complete view of it. Yes, there is a distinct point where people are saved, and we must not separate salvation from the ever-working grace of God. There is a moment in time where one becomes a believer, but yet salvation and the grace of God it is working on people long before that and long after. And the church, it is to be instrumental in bestowing God's grace. And that is what it means to be a sacramental church. We'll get into that in a bit. But we have to realize that sin is more than just a dirty rap sheet. Sin actually disorders the lives of individuals, it disorders the lives of families, communities, and beyond. And the grace of God is essentially this thing. It comes down and it says the world is disorderly. The world is filled with chaos and suffering. And God looks to the disorderly state of humanity and the grace of God, it comes to bring some order to the chaos, to bring people towards Him. And God is active in doing this even before people realize how to ask for grace. And the church must realize that being in the praise of grace of God is a powerful thing. So let's actually get to a biblical example of this. And this is really an understanding of provenient grace. And let's go to Genesis chapter 
21 and read a few verses here. Would anyone volunteer here in our, our studio, Pastor Amanda? Okay. So starting with verse 15, it reads as follows. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. And this is talking about Hagar. Uh, then she went and sat down opposite of him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Do not let me look on the death of my child. And as she sat opposite of him, she lifted up her voice and she wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, and I will make a great nation out of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. All right, Hagar, in this story, if you go back to Genesis, you can find... Things aren't so great, Abraham and Sarah. They are encountered by God. They they run into this new covenant, and they really have no idea what this is going to look like. But yet God calls them to leave the land of their ancestors and go out to this new kingdom. And along the way, they kind of have an issue believing that God is going to make good on his covenant the way that he was promised to them. And they bring Hagar into the picture so that Hagar can bring Abraham a son. But after they gave birth to Isaac, they kind of turn against Hagar. It's a really unfortunate situation. Abraham's distressed over it. Sarah just wants Hagar gone. And Hagar finds herself out in the wilderness, and her child is dying. This is Ishmael. And Hagar knows very little of the God of Abraham and Sarah. And for that matter, Abraham and Sarah know very little about God at this point. But this is even more true for Hagar. Hagar found herself out, not by her own intent, but thrown out into the wilderness. But the grace of God is acting in her life. She was in the presence of Abraham and Sarah, and therefore she was in the presence of God's covenant. She does not even really know how to ask for help in this situation. She just basically says, God, or she doesn't even address God. She just says, blind me so that I don't have to see the death of my child. But as we see in this story, God's grace is working in her life to bring order to a very disorganized situation. Abraham and Sarah kind of made a mess of the whole family unit. And Hagar, there's really not a good answer for, well, how can I find any meaning in life again? How can I find stability? You know, there's no good real answers for Hagar's situation. But yet God, the God who spoke creation into existence, comes to bring order in that moment. And the prevenient grace of God is there even before Hagar knows how to ask for it. She doesn't even go through all the, the rites and rituals one might expect. She's not giving a prayer the one way we may expect in the modern day and age, but God's grace shows up to bring order when the world just wants to throw someone away. And we must realize that salvation is something which is working in us before we really get to even a moment of knowing how to ask for it. Just sort of like Hagar, she was in the presence of that covenant. It made an impact on her life and she's being transformed by it. We as the church, our existence in the church should be wrapped up in being sacramental and facilitating an environment where people are encountering God's grace. The church is not something which exists just by accident or incident. We are set apart to be God's instrument in bestowing grace. All right, let's have a conversation about salvation before we get into sacraments. So I'll just throw this around the room. Pastor Amanda, what are your thoughts on provenient grace and Hagar and how that applies mm -hmm. to us in the modern day and age? Well, I think what's fascinating about this story is that um, out of all the stories you could probably pick about Praveen Gates, you, you picked an Old Testament text. So obviously this predates Christ yeah. and the atoning sacrifice on the cross. And I think for us to really have a good grasp of salvation is to realize that even Christ himself did not come into a void, right? He didn't just show up one day, but he comes into the, yeah. the human context that where God had already been working, well, he is God. So the triune God had already been working for thousands of years, uh, saving people. And though definitely Christ's uh, life, death, and resurrection is the pinnacle and the only way through uh, that we have salvation, uh, that that is still, um, that God is still working um, in, in lots of ways of calling people back to, to salvation. And also like um, in this, and we've talked about, so this is kind of a, a side conversation tied into our articles of faith. And we've talked about um, our article of faith nine, which is uh, regeneration, justification, and adoption. And I, I like that the church in Nazarene was w aware enough to use all three of those ways to describe salvation, because I do think, especially in American churches, or we can say Western churches, we have this fascination with justification where it almost kind of gets a little bit out of alignment, where we do kind of think of this like, 
um, very transactional way of salvation. Yeah. And so we kind of tied that in in our examples. And these are analogies to describe salvation. And so we said, okay, it's not just justification, though we are justified without a doubt, but we are tied in with adoption and regeneration that now there's a new life, a new identity that is tied into. So it's not just a moment, but it has to be continually lived out. And of course, this is all preference with prevenient grace, um, that there is something that has happened beyond ourselves. And I think that's also to tie us back because we um, are Wesleyan Arminian and we, we have this fascination with free will and we really like the idea of free will. And sometimes that can go too far where we think maybe we can like earn our salvation. And so prevenient grace yeah. comes in and says, no, nah, you can't even ask for it unless God has empowered you, which God empowers all of us to do. It's not like he picks and chooses which ones get to have prevenient grace and which ones don't. But he empowers all of us. But that turning is only made possible because of God's actions first and foremost. Yeah. And earlier you mentioned this bend that we have in the modern Western church. And really, if you look at a lot of these movements, the camp meetings and sort of the revivals people had, they did have a heavy emphasis on this moment. And it did become like a transaction, like it's salvation on demand. Like I just kind of snap my fingers and it's there. And while there is a, a distinct moment, I'm not saying that this is not part of salvation. We're just saying that you've got to put it in the grand scope of things and realize that God is working even before that moment. There are things leading up to that. It doesn't happen in a void. And just as Christ doesn't come in a void, you can even look to the Old Testament and see the grace of God being present with someone as as Hagar, who, let's be honest, that would be someone completely discarded by history. Abraham and Sarah were people to be discarded by history. And now you have an unwanted slave of Abraham and Sarah. But yet, God still wants to come to a situation in the world where humanity has made a big mess of things. Um, even God's people have made a big mess of things. And God says, no, I love you. I want to bring as much order to this as is possible. Time is not being rewritten. This is where you're at, but you're going to be blessed and the grace is coming for you. Pastor Mike, what are your thoughts on salvation and having that complete picture of salvation? Well, I think the, the passage, uh, if we look to it and look at the beauty of the passage, obviously, is is that God is uh, attentive to his creation. And just as you said, if the things that humanity has tried to fulfill the promise and fulfill um, on their own, that even when it's messed up, God is at work, even when Hagar didn't realize it, or really Abraham or Sarah. And you know, the, it, that's how it is today. God is at work for you right now, uh, in your life, and you, you may not realize it, but God is at work. Alrighty, and now we're going to go to discuss sacraments. The last few weeks we've been talking about the Eucharist, baptism, and what it means to look in the Nazarene Manual and find articles of faith on sacraments. But now we're going to have a conversation on what it actually means to be a sacramental church and what a sacrament is. So we're going to move to discussing sacraments. At the beginning of this conversation, I want to say again that one does not already have to be familiar with the language of sacramental and sacrament to pursue sacramental life in the church. A lot of this language sounds like jargon and it sounds like high church stuff, which is so distant and out there, but we all need to expand our minds and this is important language to learn. And even if you're not familiar with these already, hang around with us and, and learn these words. They're very important and I'm more than confident that you'll be able to, to join with us. So let's discuss what a sacrament is. Just for a quick recap, in the Church of the Nazarene, there are two sacraments, baptism and the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is also known as communion and the Lord's Supper. And pretty much anywhere you look in the Protestant world, and when we say Protestant, we essentially mean anyone who's not Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. You look pretty much throughout the Protestant world, you are going to find they recognize these two sacraments. And a sacrament is something very important. A sacrament is a rite, and that's spelled R-I-T-E, not R-I-G-H-T. So, got the same root in there as ritual. A sacrament is a rite that is set apart for being instrumental in bestowing God's grace. Sacraments are rites that transcend quality of human life being connected to that of the divine. Moreover, when one participates in the sacraments, they are making an oath with God. To put it a little bit shorter, sacraments are ritual expressions of the saving work of Christ through his death and resurrection. A modern definition of a sacrament might be an outward sign of an inward grace. And that simple definition of an outward sign of an inward grace, it hints to the idea that a believer is publicly making an oath to God and expressing the fact that God's grace is at work within their soul. 
Another definition that one might find is a means of grace by which we participate in that grace. And so sacraments, they really are these rites, these rituals that we in the church, we are commanded and we are called to participate in. Again, whether it be on a Sunday or a church service that you're at where you're taking the sacraments or could be something that's outside of a service where that's happened, the Eucharist, or you're in a baptismal service. Wherever you find these things, it should be a moment where God's grace it shows up, it's working in the life of the believer, someone is making a public oath, and it's a very serious and very important thing. Now, not all rites are sacraments. We have other rites and things that we do. We look at marriage as being something that's a rite. If we really have a good understanding of what worship is and coming into a church service, having a sermon delivered, um, even participating in an offering, you know, these are things which we can look at as, as rites. But not all rites are sacraments, though, Sacraments themselves do have ritualistic elements. And even though not all actions in the church are recognized as sacraments, they should be things that we carry out sacramentally. So let's talk about what exactly we mean by that. So there's two sacraments, baptism, the Eucharist, but what does it mean to do other things sacramentally? Somebody pick up on that and, and carry us on a little bit. Pastor Mike? Well, sacramentally taking on um, actions in the church means that they're sacramentally being holy, being made holy. So uh, whether it be uh, anointing of the sick or even marriage, it is a sacred, it is a holy activity and it should be uh, done with extreme reverence. And you participate in that and though it may not be a sacrament, it is an extreme sacramental activity. If that trying to make that clear. It is holy. And so we should live a life of holiness, and we're called to that. Pastor Amanda? Well, I was thinking of something actually we just did. Wednesday, um, we had a special service that we had a blessing of the pets, and we used it from um, the, the bigger book of blessings. Or actually, it's not. I think it's the book of blessings. There's a smaller book of blessings, sorry. But anyways, um, and so, we, so it's uh, from the Catholic tradition, but we took it and we kind of reworked it a little bit to, to fit our context, and then we invited people in our congregation to bring their animals. And so that was a rite. We went through a very planned order of service. We we had certain prayers that were prayed, a responsive reading, and a sermon, a homily that was preached, and then we blessed the pets. And so it was very ritualistic in the sense that it had, it had an order to it, but it wasn't necessarily a sacrament. And the difference in that is, is that's not something everyone needs to do. It's not something that's necessary uh, or for the Christian faith. Um, and it was sacramental in the sense of we took it very seriously, even though it was fun and we got to, to hang out with our animals and in, in, the, in the church building and things like that. Um, but it was it had a purpose to it. It was very purposeful. It was very sacred. It was sacramental, but it wasn't a sacrament. It's not at the same level as, say, communion and baptism. And although we don't believe that communion or baptism save you, that is Christ's work alone, that it is that means of grace by which we join in with the, that experience with Christ where we are put to death where we experience the Last Supper with them. And so there's just kind of a different level. And I'm using that kind of as an example of what the difference between something that's sacramental and something that is a sacrament. And I think one of the key words you use there is grace. When we do something sacramentally, we should be operating on the foundation that the church should be bestowing God's grace. It is instrumental in bestowing God's grace. Doesn't mean it's the author of God's grace. Doesn't mean it's the originator. It's an instrument in bestowing God's grace. And again, we must realize that the church, it's not here accidentally. It's not here incidentally. It's not just random happenstance that God works within the church. The church has a ancient call. It's been in it from its inception that it would be the body of Christ. This is something which is fundamental to who we are as Christians. And when we are functioning as the church to be instrumental in bestowing God's grace, people are going to encounter that. Similar to what we saw there with Hagar in that story, she doesn't even really know how to ask for God's grace, but yet her presence within that covenant, something starts happening. She's there in the presence of that covenant with Abraham and Sarah, and God's grace is working in her life. When people come into the church, even if we're not participating in communion at the moment, we're not having a service for baptism at the moment, people should come in and still be exposed to God's grace. There should be something going on within the life of the church which is unique from any other institution in the world. Again, if if we just say experiencing God's grace is an emotional thing, you know, you go up, you hold your hands in the air, you start going through that, um, you're reducing it down to something which people actually get other places. If it's just an emotional thing, people get that other places. The church is not trying to compete with saying we can do emotions better than anyone else. We can have the better speaker than anyone else. We can compel you. We can stir you better than anyone else. We're supposed to be bringing people to God. 
That is something set apart from any other institution on the world. The church is to be an institution which is oriented in a unique way from the world. This is the whole idea of being um, set apart to be holy. Okay, so let's get back to learning a little bit more about what a sacrament is. And you might ask the question, why do we only have two? So when it comes to the criteria for a sacrament, um, really we have three things that we have consistently seen throughout time. And you can go back to the early church and see this is why from very early stages they understood there was something about the Eucharist and baptism which were set apart from other things. And let's talk about that. Pastor Amanda, do you have the, the list yeah. there? All right, so the three criteria um, are that they were instituted by Jesus and various denominations and church traditions may define this differently um, versus the church, the Nazarene, and many Protestants see this as something where Jesus like actually um, not only was around when those things happened, but actively participated and then commanded that people follow it. And so that's why we then have baptism and uh, Holy Eucharist or communion or Lord's Supper. Uh, the second criteria is bestowing God's grace. So obviously if we said the definition for a sacrament is a means of grace or um an outward sign of inward grace, then God's grace has to be involved. So this has to be, it has to be holy, it cannot just be something mundane. And then third, it has to have an outward sign tied to it. And so this is seen in the water and baptism, the bread and wine and communion. Um, and then of course, other traditions may add things um, like the holy oil that's used to anoint the sick or um, marriage, you have the marriage vows, the rings. Um, so the other traditions may add or subtract to this list, but these three criteria are found in all of these traditions, yeah. even though we may define them. So again, instituted by Jesus, bestowing God's grace, and have an outward sign. All right, Anthony, I know you had done some, some work on a little bit on the history of the term sacrament itself and how we get there in English with this word, and that kind of helps people understand the history of it as well. Um, sacrament comes directly from the Latin sacramenta, which is an oath of allegiance. And these were often made um, not just for uh, people who were trying to relate to um, their God or anything else like that, but they were also made just to handle debts, um, you know, basically a very contractual relationship where you were owed something or you owed something yourself. And so um, that's sort of where the original idea of sacrament sacramenta came from, although it's not quite the most original. Beyond that, there's also um, Mysterion, which while Christianity was traveling across the Roman Empire, uh, it was leaving more from the Eastern Greek world to the very Latin Western world. And so a lot of things had to be translated for um, Latin use, obviously. And so sacramenta is the Latin translation or the Latin choice for mysterion, which we can find in the New Testament. Mysterion in the early church and uh, basically in the eastern part of the Roman world was uh, also an oath of allegiance, but it also carried this idea of the relationship with the divine, with divinity. And so... Um, Mysterion, as you can probably hear, is related to the word mystery. And this is not just a mystery of like, you know, uh, Scooby-Doo, as we were saying before the show. Uh, how does, you know, how do you solve this mystery or whatever else? Mysterion is related to the divine human relationship. It's this idea of amazing, transcending, uh, the great mystery. Yeah. Those sort of things carry the connotation that Mysterion would have. And so in many ways, um, that is where the root of our sacraments can be found. It is in this divine human relationship that is in a way unfathomable. It is so awesome. But it is something that is there and that we can perceive in our lives. Yeah, and when we say mysterion in the Greek and we think modern mysteries, <laughs> whenever we think modern mystery, we think something like, oh, there's a crime, we've got to solve it. And really the good of the situation is not found until the confusion or the paranormal aspect of it is explained away. But with Mysterion, it's this idea that there is an inexplicable connection between the human spirit and God. And that is something which is beautiful. And even though it's inexplicable, it is bestowing grace. And that's really where we find the history of that. Okay, so let's get into a place where we're going to compare some, some sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church with that of where we're at in the Church of Nazarene. So again, we have baptism in the Eucharist, but in the Roman Catholic Church, they have seven. And the first being baptism, the second, the Eucharist, 
And then there are five others. So let's get with these and then we're going to break them down really what they are and do we need to have some of these or do we already do some of these and just treat it sacramentally. So the third one to talk about is reconciliation. Now this is where we see things like confession or absolving of sin. This idea that you go and you confess something, you confess it to a priest and you're kind of forgiven for it. They, they absolve you of sin. That's considered a, a sacrament. The ability to do that, the calling and charge of the, the priesthood to do that is, is a sacrament. Now, the next one, number four, is confirmation. And this is really, confirmation is almost the whole reason why we had this discourse on salvation earlier, because confirmation is confirmation of a believer, but the theology of salvation, and again, I'm not Roman Catholic, so I'm giving the Nazarene perspective on this. It is a little bit wider in the sense that you are confirming that God's grace has been working up with someone to, to the point of salvation. And this person is confirming that they are going to continually grow in grace. And they're going to have that allegiance to live as a Christian should live. So it is confirmation that one is saved, but it's confirmation that they are growing in the kingdom and they have an oath of loyalty to it. And again, with that whole idea of an oath of loyalty, it is part of the sacramental language. All right, so the fifth one we have is marriage. Um, just marriage. I think that kind of wraps it up. Um, and number six is holy orders. Now, holy orders sounds weird when you hear that, but it's kind of ordination. If you've ever been to an ordination service, um, the Church of the Nazarene, we always sing um, holiness unto the Lord, and we, we march into that. It's kind of like a wedding ceremony most of the time. Um, almost always it's designed to be sacred like that. And then number seven, the last one is anointing of the sick. And you may also hear the word unction here for this sacrament. And it's this idea, idea of anointing those who are sick. All right, so let's get into these. And we will see, do we already handle these in some way? Do we need to have this as a sacrament? And if not, how do we handle it and how do we get around it? So let's get with the first one, reconciliation. We do not recognize this as a sacrament. And this is, again, the idea of someone confesses their sin to clergy and they absolve them of that sin. So in the Church of the Nazarene, where does this fit in? And we may do a little bit of dialogue and debate here, maybe some Socratic method. We may make some arguments that aren't totally ours. So full disclaimer in the front, we're just going to hear arguments for and against having this as a sacrament. So, Well, I think one argument I hear a lot, and like this seems to be one of the sacraments that gets easily picked on, the Protestants pick on the Catholics for, because um, often we see this as kind of the priest almost stepping in as as Christ, as that mediator. And so we almost immediately like push this one aside because we're like, well, we believe we can come to Jesus without a mediator. So we don't we don't need the priest to, to be there. Um, and, and so we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater a little bit when we, we did away with the sacrament, because now it's we don't we haven't created kind of a, a way to talk about reconciliation or penance or confession. Often the only times any kind of reconciliation happens is after a great crisis. And when I mean a great crisis, I mean like nearly world ending or marriage ending or, or family ending, life ending crisis. And the pastor has to sit down with the parties involved and go through counseling. That's about the closest thing I can think of that we have to to kind of a, a structure of, of, of confession. And so, but I think we've kind of misunderstood what it is. And, and I'm not Catholic either. I've not been trained in that tradition, so I don't know for sure, and I can't speak exactly. But I, I don't think they're trying to place themselves in the, the place of Jesus. I think they're just trying to realize that people need a way to process. And often we have to process that out loud, and we have to do it with someone else. Even John Wesley would recognize this in his construction of his societies and his bands. And though he would construct it differently than the Catholic Church, um, obviously as an Anglican minister, um, he still realized that we need each other to talk to one another and to be that means of grace, that although we are not the mediator that Christ is, we can be Christ-like mediators to others. Yeah, and there is this notion that there is a priesthood and then there's sort of the priesthood of all believers where if you're in the body of Christ, we, we function in a certain ministerial capacity. And yeah, there is certainly a role of that. Pastor Mike, your thoughts on this? Well, I think it's very important for us to realize that we are united in Christ. There is one church that the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, and Protestants, we are one church. And though we have uh, slightly, uh, uh, you know, different areas of sacraments or things uh, in, in 
that that are a little bit different from church to church. There are uh, what I would consider misnomers out there about the Roman Catholic Church where many Protestants feel like, well, you know, if they go to confession on, uh, on Friday and, uh, you know, then go to church, receive the, the, the Lord's Supper at Mass or and the Eucharist, and, and then they just live like the devil all week long. And I, I think that is a tremendous misnomer. And though it may be true, you can find that probably true in some Protestant um, churches too, is is that there is a call to holiness. And so there's there's some type, uh, they've been often pitted against one another and to say, well, if you're going to be called to a life of holiness, um, you know, this is not to live like go to confession every week and it's a permit to go on and sin. Yeah. No, that's not exactly what's going on there. And, um, you know, good practicing faithful Catholics are very much a holy people, just like we believe as uh, Church of the Nazarene. And so I think on the flip side of that coin, you can see where, and I think Pastor Amanda alluded to it, is that we have that altar at the church and an altar call and that, you know, you must be, you know, that's just for to come and accept Jesus as Lord and Savior is that one-time event. But no, that altar is always there and always invited for people to come and pray. And there may need to be a place for reconciliation, confession. And, one, you know, that is the ministry of Christ is to reconcile the world. And so, you know, we, we need to come to that place of prayer and reconciliation. Anthony, your thoughts on reconciliation, confession? Well, firstly, just as a prelude, um, I wish I could have said this right after you sort of set up this conversation, but uh, I will say that since the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church has actually found a lot of um, scriptural foundation for the things that it does, which is really interesting because we don't connect uh, scriptural foundations with the Catholic Church. But anyways, I just want to say that because uh, if we're looking at our criteria, instituted by Jesus, bestowing God's grace, and there's an outward sign, I think reconciliation very well could fit into that. I'm not sure what you might use for the outward sign, but I can say that Jesus Christ did call us to um, confess our sins to one another and to repent, and then uh, in our faith we shall be saved. Well, uh, in addition to that, we are called to forgive one another, yeah. and so we are called to confess our sins and we are called to forgive one another. And so um, I'd, it's hard for me to imagine this not being instituted by Christ, not being commanded by Christ that we would uh, go through at least the process that we can find in reconciliation, in confession. You know, I don't know that it absolutely has to be part of a right, but I know that being part of the right could be very uh, beneficial. Well, I think it's fair to say that this does need to be done ritualistically and a bit as a right. I would actually, I'm, I feel pretty comfortable about saying that. Now, whether or not it should be an actually recognized sacrament, you know, we're not going to, I mean, obviously we're not like, <laughs> the new General Assembly is actually just Kingdom of the Law. <laughs> it's Logos. just us four. Yeah, it's just us four. Uh, we're <laughs> not claiming to be that at all. We'll yeah. communicate the other six. I didn't um, that. <laughs> but, but when you come to this question... I have heard some Nazarene pastors say something to the effect of what has been said here in the studio is that we kind of treat the altar as like the sinners go up there mm -hmm. or maybe those looking to have sanctification or maybe it's like an anointing place. If you've got something which has been bringing your faith down, you've had some sin creep in your life, we in the Church of Nazarene don't have a good job of addressing that and dealing with it on the front end. Again, most of the time it does wait till it, it kind of snowballs into a larger thing and then we kind of go address it there. And I've heard some Nazarene pastors say we need something in the church structure where pastors are taught from the weekly standpoint, from the pulpit. Now, this doesn't take the form of normal, like going in a little box and confessing something, but from the pulpit, absolving people's sin and encouraging people to regularly confess things. If you have something causing you to backslide, don't let that turn into a you know, family marriage wrecker. You know, deal with that on the front end and get past it. We are commanded to forgive one another. Pastor Mike? Well, I think a lot of times by suppressing that, it continues to get worse. But, you know, it, this is a discussion that's been going on for, you know, ever since Christianity has come at the birth, I guess, somewhat. You see in Paul's letters, you know, where grace comes, if sin were to come in to happen, to confess, but at the same time, by all means, no, do not continue to sin. Grace abounds. And that is the, you know, the, the beauty of reconciliation and absolving of sins, that grace, God's grace is forgiving, but it is not a, 
uh, a free pass for sin. Yep, and we got to move along. Confirmation. <laughs> now, again, in the Church of the Nazarene, this one, it may seem a little weird. I think this is the one that's the most awkward to talk about because we, we genuinely think of salvation. And you, you find this on all levels of the church. You find all the way up, people say, what is that moment when you were saved? And we kind of chop salvation off from the wonderful work of grace that it is. God's been working in your life. And again, you go all the way back, there's a huge cost for salvation. Don't diminish that or cut the reality of salvation off to that. Don't reduce it down to where it's, it's you know, it's a small, cheap thing. Don't cheapen it. Um, but what do we think about confirmation? I believe in confirmation uh, is so important to the church. And, and uh, you know, so like we baptize uh, children or infants in the Church of the Nazarene and so does the Roman Catholic Church. There are other Protestants who do not, but at the same time, uh, that child has, has uh, not the cognitive ability at that age to um, express a faith in Christ and, and uh, uh, following uh, Jesus and, and the, the teachings of Jesus. And so that is the, the understanding for the family and the church to raise that child up in an, a a Christian home and in a uh, the teachings of Jesus and so there has to be something you so suppose you got a service and you got you know three-year-old and four-year-old and they see you know mom and dad receiving the the elements of the Lord's Supper and they want to participate and you know there needs to be a saying you need to understand what it means to believe that there is an, an extreme reverent reverence and sacredness about the Eucharist and so that there is a place of being confirmed and once that and then you continue to participate in the life of Christ so confirmation is extremely important and it needs to be um, something that Protestants I, I feel like should be practicing and again confirmation is this idea that says we are confirming that you are are saved and that you are committed to a life of Christian living that you're going to be growing in grace and you recognize that God has been growing or giving you grace and you've been building towards that. Pastor Amanda? Um, yeah, I was thinking about this. I think there's kind of two ways we see confirmation in, in the Protestant church, specifically in the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, one, we see this a lot in our membership classes. This is where we take people who have uh, expressed an interest in participating in the, in the local congregation a little bit more intimately. Um, they also have to confess that they have experienced God's grace and have accepted that gift um, and are living into that grace. And so we see that. And I also think, because often we think of confirmation, uh, especially within Catholicism, as like kids do that, right? And then they have their first communion when they are confirmed. And I think our closest thing to that is caravan, which yeah. I don't know if many people listening to this program know what caravan is. It's kind of like Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, uh, but it's under the umbrella of the Church of the Nazarene. And what I... Growing up as a kid, I loved Caravan, and then I got a little bit older in, like, my preteens and teenage years when I had to actually help out with it. I'm like, wow, this is a lot of work for very little reward, or that's how I felt like. And as I'm getting older, I'm beginning to think, like, there was a great um, mindset behind the idea of Caravan. And although sometimes it can be done well and sometimes it's not, it was this idea of helping educate. And I think maybe the greatest disservice we did is we did not continue caravan into adulthood for our adults. <laughs> um, but it, it is this great way of educating children of what exactly, like Pastor Mike yeah. said, a kid might see their parents taking communion or someone being baptized, but they don't understand it. Well, they won't understand unless someone teaches them. And I think the other great thing about caravan is it wasn't just quote unquote spiritual things. It was, it talked about physical, emotional relationship and also spiritual things. And maybe we segmented those things out too much, but there was this attempt of saying that salvation does not just happen in one aspect of your life or just on Sunday morning, but it, it, it envelops your whole life. And so now we're gonna, the church is now taking on this responsibility, not just to teach you about the 16 articles of faith or the apostles creed, but it's gonna teach you things like personal hygiene, um, how to cook, um, how to make friends and learn how to share and care for one another and develop empathy. And so the church said, you know, we have a responsibility not just to confirm people to our tradition, but to make people holistically well, to be that means of grace that, that cultivates good people, good holy people. Anthony? All right, well, um, my answer to the question, should confirmation be a sacrament? Based on our three uh, criteria, I would have to say no, only because there's not necessarily 
an outward sign, some sort of symbolic set of elements or anything like that that I can see in the situation. Now, I definitely think that it has more than enough room to be a right, um, R-I-T-E, not constitutional right or anything like that, but a ritual within the church. And I think the ritual would be extremely important, and it's something that I think also uh, we have sort of omitted altogether. It's kind of funny. I think we've our question sort of skips a step here uh, in its thoughts just because we're asking whether or not these things should be sacraments whenever really we rarely treat them like rites, um, like rituals. I don't remember the last time anybody treated in the Church of the Nazarene that I've experienced treated confession or reconciliation as a ritual. And uh, I can say the same for confirmation other than maybe church membership. And so um, whether or not these things should be rituals and whether or not these things should be sacraments are important questions for us to wonder. I think it should definitely be a ritual. I'm not sure that um, it can be a sacrament just based on our criteria. Well, again, and... This criteria is not something like I, I would actually like to hear a really solid history of where this criteria comes from. Because when you look at the the Protestant um, history, which includes everything up to the Reformation, um, it's not just Catholic to that point. It's actually it folds into where we're at too. It is an interesting thing. Um, so we've got to move on for time purposes. Let's talk about marriage. I think we came to the conclusion on on confirmation caravan. For those of you who do caravan. Um, more power to you, and one cannot work hard enough in caravan, evidently. Evidently, those who do the hard work of caravan need to write an adult criteria <laughs> and then rope the adults in. So I'm sure everyone out there who does caravan was just happy to hear that. <laughs> more work. Yeah. More work, yes. I'm, but we do appreciate caravan. Yes. But at the same time, from the denominational level, I think there is a need for there to be some emphasis on this that says, look, you you need to be doing things like this with the new believers. It, it wouldn't be bad to see a larger emphasis on that, even if it's not made into a, a full sacrament. Our God is is a God of order um, that brings order to things. So if we look at all of these sacraments there or, or um, ordinances that, that or sacraments of the, the Catholic Church, there are things that uh, require great order and also serious and uh, reverence. Yep. And moving on to marriage. So marriage is something which is interesting. Some of my <laughs> favorite services that I, I get to do are marriage wedding services. Um, I'll just kind of say that. What do we think about that as a sacrament? Pastor Amanda? I think something interesting about, as we've been talking about, the difference between a ritual or a rite and then different between what is sacrament and then what is a sacrament, what's sacramental or can be sacramental. I think marriage sometimes falls in this weird category where we, it is highly ritualized. Like there's a pattern to it. There's often, and even though people might make their slight variation on it or do or add and subtract pieces, there, there is generally an order of rite to it. Um, however, I, I think, and this is not I think we'd like to claim it's a modern problem, but it's been going on. I mean, look at our story in the Old Testament. We have Hagar who yep. kind of gets thrown into this um, marriage situation, even though she does not have all the, the rights and privileges of, of being a participant in, in a marriage. Um, so so marriage has been problematic since um, the get-go, uh, since sin entered the world. But I think it's going to, even though it's highly ritualistic, we've disconnected it from that. I mean, it's a lifetime commitment. If anything is to be to be tied into that Latin root word of an oath, a marriage fits mm -hmm. that criteria probably the best um, out of it. Because it is, it's not just an oath to your partner, um, to your spouse, but it is an oath to God that you both are continuing in this relationship with one another, but towards wholeness in Christ. And so I, I think it's it's amazing how marriage often gets left out of these ideas in the Protestant church, gets left out of this idea of being a sacrament. Although I think it honestly fits probably the best or one of the best into those criterias um, because it really is this beautiful. Also, I mean, Paul writes, uses it several times as an example of how the church and um, Christ are interacting. And although people have misused those texts to, to um uh, explain away their own bad behavior. Really, there is this idea of commitment and oath and fidelity. And also, I mean, you hear this in Hosea, uh, Hosea, it, one of the prophets where God uh, calls Hosea to marry this unfaithful woman. And God's like, you know what, you're called to be faithful, even if she is not. And basically, this becomes an example that God will be faithful to the people of God, even when they choose not to be. Yeah. And, and, and although, 
there are uh, the Catholic Church doesn't leave a lot of room, but the Protestant Church does. That there are times where divorce is definitely okay because of either abuse or other things that are not healthy. Um, and although that we allow God's grace to work in those situations, regardless of, of what is happening, um, we have to take marriage seriously because it is an oath. It is a commitment, again, to one another, but also ultimately to God. One of the things which gets me about marriage is I have seen with younger generations, a lot of people not even see the need to get married and not even, again, I remember being like 10 years younger and people being like, well, it's a legal contract. You need it because it gives you access to stuff. Now we're at like a point in society where it doesn't give you any material benefits. And if you take away the spiritual grace side of marriage, like what is special about it? Like this should be something which makes marriage set apart. Um, and, and I'm saying that in our day and age when everybody, you know, everything's on demand, you know, you don't have to really commit to any relationships. And if you do want to commit to a relationship, you don't have to have anything to, to bind that. You don't even need to do anything. You just kind of do whatever you want. We live in a day and age where the sacredness of marriage, the grace element, this idea that something that can only be found in the church that you can't find in anywhere else, that it is something unique, that it's set apart for God's purposes. Marriage needs to be one of those things where there's something set apart from it that it can't just be found through a legal contract, through a, this benefit I'm going to get through it, or anything of that nature. It should be set apart as in bestowing God's grace. Anthony? Um, as far as it becoming an actual sacrament, though, Again, if I'm just looking at the criteria, uh, I can't really recall Christ uh, calling us into marriage himself. I know that, you know, there's the the creation stories in Genesis where Adam and Eve are told to uh, be fruitful and multiply. And, you know, they were given into one another and that sort of thing. But I can't really find where uh, Christ instituted marriage. There is the wedding at Cana where he performed his first miracle according to John, but um, that's still not quite instituting the whole ritual. And then beyond that also, um, the bestowment of God's grace is also part of the question as well. And I think there is a pretty good argument that you could say that um, God has given men and women to one another, and so that we have that we have the opportunity for that unity through marriage. Uh, it should be considered a blessing from God. I think that would be a valid argument for that. Um, but beyond that, I just I don't think that you could call it a sacrament. Pastor Mike. Well, uh, I would say that to follow up, and I'm not trying to contradict Anthony because I agree. I don't I don't necessarily know that it is a a sacrament, and obviously we do not recognize it as one. And and the criteria is something I guess that if you wanted to argue that against Anthony you might say well Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the body of Christ and therefore Christ has participated in it and 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 you know so I, I think you're I think there are good reasons to go either way but at the at the end of the day I think it there is no doubt that this is extremely serious marriage is something that we do not take lightly and it must be uh, held with the utmost sincerity on on all parties involved and that's not just the bride and the groom but all every, the whole world is affected by this so yeah. the people involved whether it be the uh, uh, officiant or or the the parents or the children or or, or or I mean the families and you know nephews nieces everything yeah and one thing again this criteria that we have here is not one we put together and we're really not doing this just to filter it through that criteria but when you look at sacraments, they are officiated by clergy. And marriage is something which you have to be clergy to officiate. Um, and that's that's an important distinction to make here. And marriage is actually one of the things where I look at the world around us and I look throughout human history and people haven't really done enough to elevate this. So I actually would be in favor of something of marriage is important, something this sacred. You know, we've got to do something to to elevate it. I'm not saying you just do it because you try to put a Band-Aid on people not taking it seriously. But I think you could make a good case that this should be considered a sacred thing of bestowing God's grace and giving life as people are being united as, as a new being. Well, let's carry on to holy orders. This one is also interesting. And it's really, we'll try to speed through this one because it kind of is specific just to clergy. Um, 
a lot of lay people may not be terribly interested in this, but it is something that they should be interested in, so we'll mm -hmm. try to give it some airtime. Um, so holy orders is this idea that you are ordaining people. Um, generally, in the Church of Nazarene, you get ordained as a deacon or a elder. Not a lot of people get ordained as deacons. Uh, most people go the elder track. But all the same, this again, it is something where you get ordained by a general superintendent, it's not something which happens on a whim. It takes a long time to get there generally. Yeah, it's and there are only six of them to do it. So it is a pretty big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. Y'all tell me what you think about ordination. I think on this one, too, it's kind of interesting that this is not one of our sacraments um, because it is probably in the Nazarene churches. It's uh, one of the... Out of the five we're talking about that aren't Nazarene-recognized uh, sacraments, this is one of the ones we treat probably the most yeah. like a sacrament. I mean, there is a ritual you do not divert from, like, at all. I know one year my, my dad was um, a district uh, secretary, and he and the office secretary got their wires crossed, and they accidentally left a part of the ordination service out, and Dr. Nina Gunners was the GS at that time that was over our district. And I thought my dad would just was gonna die right there on stage because I mean this is is it, it is like a wedding like it, it you do not mess with it <laughs> um, and so we we really do in the church of Nazarene treat this very sacredly um, but then again maybe like as we're talking about salvation and connecting it with the bigger picture maybe we have to do a better job of but uh, the before and the after. Um, and I'm not picking on our church at all. I'm just saying like we we put a lot of people through some very rigorous. Um, situations to make sure they are ready and then they have to continually do reports year after year so it's not like we just like oh you're ordained you get to do whatever you want but at the same time we do see that this has to continually be a means of grace so it's not a one and done kind of thing it, it's like a marriage right you don't just get married and be like oh it's all good you know we don't have to talk anymore we don't have to work together we don't have to fight like no you are in this pattern of continually growing together and that's the same thing with holy orders so to backtrack it back to is it a sacrament I really think this one, whether we call it a sacrament or recognize it as a sacrament, I think we treat it like a yeah, sacrament. It, it, and, mm -hmm. um, and it is a means of grace because it yeah. is saying, and it's not just for the person being ordained, but it's for the congregation to see that this person has done their studies, they have heard the call, they are working and continually working on being a leader in the church. Um, basically, that, that call that was given to Peter. So in that sense of where Jesus instituted and he tells Peter, um, do you love me? Well, then yeah. act like it. Feed my sheep. Yeah, tend to absolutely. my sheep. Take care of my um, flock. Well, I think all of these, uh, you know, um, we call, you know, the two sacraments that we ob observe and recognize, and then these these other uh, five that, that we're discussing, they're extremely important. But this is this is one of the things that I've noticed. I, I was at an ordinate or participated in ordination service where um, there was such a desire to bring in maybe an unctioning so service or an anointing of the sick and a prayer service that it that it almost got uh, it lost some of the uh, focus on the on the holy orders yeah. and so it, both of them are great it's just they need to be you know there's a time and a place defined and and recognized as as what they are on each and so uh, perhaps one of our general superintendents was was uh, uh, expressing his uh, former general superintendent uh, emeritus was expressing his uh, appreciation for unction but both of them are extremely important I just think they need to be um, you know designed in, in an orderly fun function where you, you don't always have a baptism and a wedding together sometimes you do and it's perfectly fine but the, there is a focus there all right, moving on to anointing of the sick, unction. So you hear this word unction, let's talk about this. Anointing of the sick. Now this is something which, it does take on different forms. You oftentimes have someone, they come and they, they put the oil. Um, this is one of the, the common uses that we find our altars still used for, um, which is good. <laughs> there are, are people who even want to move away from, from having a lot of the furniture that's there in the, the sanctuary. But this is one of the, the definite uses for for the rituals of the service, coming together, laying hands on, getting a body of believers to say, we are raising this one up. Um, Y'all, let's talk about anointing of the sick. Do we treat it sacramentally already? Do we need to treat it more sacramentally? Where do we see that? There oftentimes is a ritualistic element to this, 
And it's generally the same, even though it may be in a hospital, uh, it may be in a service, it may be in someone's home. Um, it's generally the same, though it does take on slight differences. And what do we think about this? Pastor Amanda? Uh, I think for annoying the sick, yeah, I, I think we do already treat it very much like a rite, even the, the Church of the Nazarene. Um, and we may not have uh, something as developed as maybe the Catholic Church was their Book of Blessings. Um, but we do have, like, our manual kind of does help us through this. And this is actually kind of also leads us into our next article of faith is going to be on divine healing, if, if I have the numbers correct in my head. Um, which is fascinating why that is an article of faith. Um, but anyways, but there is this emphasis on it, and I believe we do. But um, but I don't think we treat it like a sacrament, even though we do con- consider it very sacramentally. And I, I think it has a, a good place in it. And I think for the Church of Nazarene, we have a good handle on exactly what it is versus what it's not. Like, it's not something to trick people in, or it's not like... Um, it's not a charismatic kind of service where it's like, I'm just going to kind of slap you on the forehead, bam, your problems are gone. Like, we don't treat it like that. We, we do treat it very reverently and understand that it is a means of grace and that ultimately we leave it up to God whether or not divine healing happens or doesn't. But also we look forward to the fact that even if that healing in this body does not happen, we look forward uh, uh, to the ultimate healing that will happen for all of us and calling on uh, the hope of the resurrection. Pastor Mike? I believe that often we, we use, uh, when we anoint people, uh, holy oil, uh, which is often olive oil that, that, that has been set apart for God's use and, and um, you know, uh, prayed over. But at the, at the end of the day, I think there's a uh, understanding that, you know, that the criteria again is that Jesus must have instituted and been a part. It's interesting to me that the same word we get out of the Greek language that we first, uh, that we translate as saved is also healed. And so um, you say, well, where was Jesus healed? And I would say, you know, after being crucified on the cross and uh, in the tomb for three days, the Holy Spirit, which is what we identify the whole, the, the oil as when we place on people and pour on and sometimes we put it in the shape, uh, rub it on as the shape of a cross. Um, it it signifies that healing uh, that that God is, is capable of doing in the body, uh, spiritually, physically, emotionally, in all areas. And so we see the, the uh, Christ, Jesus, who was killed, resurrected. Um, and even though that's a new body, a different body that will not um, decay, it is a physical body. And so for that, you know, Jesus did participate in a healing on both ends, healing others, but also being healed. Anthony? Uh, I think someone before said that one of these was the best contender in their opinion. This, in my opinion, at least for our three criteria, is the best contender. Because, I again, in my opinion, because... Christ did call on us as Christians to anoint the sick. There, it's clearly a bestowment of God's grace. This, you know, healing and other sorts of things. This is, these are things which are only done in the power of Christ. And then beyond that, there's a very, very clear outward sign. And so, um, at least for these criteria for the sacraments, which I guess we sort of have to have some sort of criteria to separate what should be a sacrament and what should just be a Christian rite. Um, But as far as that goes, according to these three criteria, I think the anointing of the sick passes in all regards. Pastor Amanda? You know, I was thinking as we were talking about the three criteria, I I wonder if maybe a fourth needs to be added, and this is just me thinking. And like we said, these criteria are ones we have found over various websites and research, so this is not something we imagined ourselves. But I also wonder kind of the universality of all these. Um, and maybe that's something that has to be added as we talk about. Obviously, as much as it is possible, um, there may be circumstances where someone may not be able to be baptized or, or share in Holy Communion. But as much as it's possible, that's something every Christian needs to, to participate in. Participate in. So should confession and confirmation. Marriage and holy orders, that one's a little more specific to certain people. So maybe that would be why it wouldn't become a sacrament, um, just because it like not everyone needs or has to get married. Yeah. Not everyone is called to be ordained. Although we do believe in the priesthood of all believers, that there are people who take that specific vocation. And anointing of the sick, again, that maybe not all people need to. That's that more might not be necessary. Yeah, it yeah. might not be necessary. So I can see that might, but at the same time, I think all in all, if all seven, if the Nazarene church at the next general assembly, which is 
in next year, two years, I don't know, whenever it is, um, if they were like, yeah, we're going to recognize all seven, I'd be like, cool. And if they were like, no, we're good with just two, I'd be like, I'm still good. But there is an essence of that these have to all be sacramental, that they are all sacred. And maybe we need to do better at making them sacred and like continually making them sacred, not just a one-time thing, but a lifetime thing. Um, But I think that ultimately they are all sacramental in in how we are to participate in the life of Christ and the life of the church. Amen. 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 And that's a good place to end. We hope you enjoyed our program. Send us your thoughts, questions, and content, or comments. Uh, Send us your content, too, I guess. I don't know. Um, Maybe you can come in and replace us. Who knows? Um, But with that, God love you, and have a blessed day.